Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. It's the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Today's guest is a special one. It's Steve House. Of all the guest requests that I receive from the Mountain Meister listeners, I'd say that Steve is probably one of the most frequent. We're going to profile his introduction to climbing, the importance of climbing mentors, and Steve's approach to mountain training with uphill athlete. He'll also talk about an accident in 2010 that left him stranded on the wall. I thought, well, if I die today, what am I happy with? What am I not happy with? This was not just a theoretical question. <laughs> this was a real, I have a really good chance of dying on this ledge in the next couple of hours. After Steve's interview, I'll speak with Jeff and Susan Russell. They're the founders of Ridge Marino, a brand out of Mammoth Lakes, California. Jeff Russell was heading up the soft goods department at Armada before he realized that all of the Armada athletes, when they weren't in photo shoots, were wearing Merino base layers instead of the synthetic ones that Armada produced. Jeff and Susan set out to make a youthful, cost-effective Merino apparel company to fill that void. After that segment, you'll hear what Hannah and I thought of the products that we tried. I'm Ben Shank. You're listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. It's an insurance company that helps health conscious people like runners or cyclists, weightlifters or vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com slash Meister to support the show and to see if you qualify. Again, that's healthiq.com slash M-E-I-S-T-E-R. Thanks. My guest today is Steve House. He's one of the most respected alpine climbers of this generation in a time when establishing a quantity of summits has a certain superficial appeal. Steve stays committed to quality. He moves through the mountains in a light and fast style, and through his programs like Alpine Mentors and Uphill Athlete, he teaches other climbers to do the same. Steve House, welcome to Mountain Meister. Thank you, Ben. How were you introduced to climbing, Steve? Uh, I got my first introduction to climbing through my parents. My, both my parents did cl some climbing, both rock climbing and mountaineering, but I would say a little more mountaineering. Um, rock climbing more as a skill to know for a bit of uh, rock you might find in the mountains. But um, it was mostly a father-son thing that I did with my dad. Uh, we also, I was a Boy Scout, so he uh, brought and I together sort of brought that into our Boy Scout troop. And we did quite a bit of climbing with the Boy Scouts at the time. And then when I was 18, I went for a year study abroad to Slovenia and uh, ended up climbing a lot there as well. This was a study abroad in Slovenia? Yeah, it was um, a student exchange program. I'd graduated from high school and already been accepted to the to, to college. Where I went to Evergreen State College in Olympia. Uh, so I had that kind of in my back pocket and took this year as sort of a, what I guess now you call a gap year. Right. But um at that time, uh, it was just more of a, a excuse not to go to college yet <laughs> and hopefully have some adventures. I didn't know there was going to be climbing there because uh, I barely knew anything. At that time, it was Yugoslavia, and I barely knew anything about the country. It was uh, definitely a leap of faith, but uh, it was definitely one of the most uh, influential experiences I've had in my life. It changed the course of my life for sure. So you lived with a Yugoslavian family? I did, yeah. Um, technically, I mean, they were Yugoslavian and they were Slovenian, as they would call themselves then and now. I mean, mm -hmm. unique language, and and uh, they were uh, Slovenia was a state of Yugoslavia at that time, and yeah, it was. Uh, I lived with a family with with two kids. Uh, father was a chemical engineer, and the mother was like a, a project manager, construction site project mm -hmm. manager. And, uh, you know, at that time, inflation there was about uh, 900%. So people would get their paychecks uh, and immediately go to the store and buy, spend every, every uh, penny because, you know, it would be worth less the next day. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a different time. It's not like that at all now. And Slovenia is, when we go across the border from either Italy or from Austria into Slovenia now, you, yeah, you've seen this, it's, there's no difference. It look, all looks it all looks the same in terms of infrastructure and the way people live and the living standards. So it's quite uh, quite been quite a change. Was anybody in this family a climber? 
uh, why was this such a defining year in your as a climber? Yeah, that's a good question. They were not climbers at all, or really uh, athletic or sports oriented in any way. <laughs> and when I went there, I would, uh, I went to I went to a high school. I went to like the you know sort of normal. Uh, uh, high school, it would be like considered the science and math high school or gym, gymnasium, as they call it. And then um, after about two months, I was super bored. <laughs> and uh, I had spent most of the time trying to learn the language because I couldn't really participate in the classes because I didn't understand anything. And uh, I was making some progress on, on that front. And uh, we were just having this conversation like, well, what do you like to do? And I was like, well, I, you know, at home, I like to you know, go climbing and I like to go skiing. And, you know, it was just telling them things I'd done is that when I grew up in Oregon uh, and that week they took me to the climbing club and uh, through that club, which I'm still in contact with that, a lot of those people in that club and the club itself, I was at their uh, annual um, dinner last year um, and it's a club that specializes in both it's it's called a Akademsko Plenisko Drushko Koziak is the official name so it's the Academic and Mountain Club Koziak okay. um, so their their mission of the club is actually instructional as well as mountain oriented so they you know some of the clubs are more just climbing oriented and some actually have a teaching kind of component in their charter and this is one such club and i was a moderately i was like a you know i'd led like five eight and i'd climbed mount hood that would sort of summarize my experience at the time and um so i i was able to kind of pick up with that and um they provided all this outlet for me to kind of run with that and before i knew it you know i was climbing you know i i, I stopped going to school <laughs> <laughs> that, that obviously had to go <laughs> and I was climbing basically every day I could um, I think I climbed 180 days that year wow. when I counted it all up so and a lot of that was in the mountains a lot of technical you know longer technical routes in the mountains um, what we would consider tech al alpinism you know technical alpine climbing uh, and often to summits um, and sport climbing as well uh, some I, my first ice climbing was done there um, yeah, and then the next year, I, a year later, I went on my first Himalayan expedition with an expedition that was organized by a member of that same club. Uh, that was to Nanga Parbat in 1990. So it really uh, had a big effect on my, my life. It sounds like these weren't helicopter host parents. <laughs> No, though they did require kind of a special call to my parents to make sure that this was okay. I mean, I was night I was let's see, I was eighteen at the time, so I guess legally it didn't matter. But uh, they did want to make sure that uh, that was that was all copacetic, my folks. Since then, you've done a ton of climbing in the Himalayas, establishing first ascents in Pakistan, also many in Alaska. Um, why is Pakistan such a meaningful place for you? You know, I have to say, like, you know, I've been to probably pretty close to every different region in the Himalaya chain, except for anything. I haven't been to Bhutan at all, but I've been to Tibet a number of times. I've been to Nepal, a bunch of different regions in Nepal, and I've been to several regions in India. And I have to say, like, the mountains in the Karakoram are just the best. <laughs> they're, the, they're not only the most beautiful, but it's the best quality of rock. Uh, really, in a lot of places, it's a really good gra quality granite. Not, not every place, of course. Um, and also, I think there's something about the particular location of the mountains. It's uh, not as snowy as most of the Himalaya, like uh, especially in Nepal, because of the way the the monsoon doesn't actually just hit the Karakoram the way the monsoon hits the the Himalaya. Uh, so it's a little less snowy. It's a little warmer. The climbing season is in the summertime. You get better. You get more melt freeze. The actual just climbing conditions are better. Um, most faces, like you can think about, like an iconic picture would be like the south face of Nupse in Nepal. You know, it's it's mostly covered in ice and glaciers, even though it's quite steep because it gets so much moisture. And that, I think a, a mountain of that same elevation, you know, would be in the Karakoram would have a lot less ice on it. It would be much more exposed rock. It would probably it would still have ice, but um, 
you know, the, so that changes the character of the climbing in the mountains. I also have to say that I've really enjoyed uh, the people in Pakistan I've had because tourism, I don't know why, but my theory is, I mean, first of all, they're nice people. And second of all, uh, tourism is um, compared to Nepal is minuscule in, in the Karakoram. And there's just not a lot of Westerners going there. Uh, most, I think Americans particularly are afraid to go to Pakistan. Um, but we got to remember Pakistan has almost the population of the United States. It's a huge country. Wow. Uh, and there's, there's a huge number of people there and there's a heck of a lot of nice people there. <laughs> and I've always had really great interactions with all the people I've met there. They've always been really friendly, really open and really honest. And yeah, I've uh, had great experiences uh, there. I think that places particularly like the Kumbu or other places in the Himalaya where they see a lot of mountain tourism. I mean, the locals are just so jaded and so over it and they all they're out, they're just out for out for your dollar. And, um, you know, they don't, they don't take the time to, to find out who you are, or let alone make a relationship. And, uh, I don't mean to, to bash on anyone, but I mean, the, the experience is just uh, completely different. For example, I've never had anything, uh, I've never had anyone steal anything from me mm. in Pakistan. Not, I mean, you could leave a Swiss army knife on a rock and it would be there in the morning. And, you know, in Nepal, I have routine, every expedition I've ever been on, I've had my luggage broken into and things stolen out of it. So, you know, I mean, it's just a different way of yeah. looking at, at what, the, what the tourist and the mountain traveler uh, represents. Hmm. Um, I find that mentorship uh i hear a lot about mentorship in mountaineering um but for you you kind of had this year when you were 18 or so do you who do you consider your mentors it sounded like you were kind of going solo during that year um abroad um well i was i i, I went there solo but i um i met and interacted with some of my most first and most important climbing mentors during that time and that was uh really important uh lessons in hindsight of course when you're young you don't realize these are lessons you just think you're having fun but um because i think what happened there was that i was exposed to essentially structured mentorship this was a club that was designed and built around teaching and still is and so the climbers that participated in that club expected to go out with less experience people. That was kind of the point of the whole thing. And so, um, there was three climbers in particular, one named Dushan, one named Lubo, one named Bronco that I climbed with a lot that year. They were all significantly older, like 15 years older than I am. And they're all still around. And, uh, Dushan and, and Lubo actually still climb quite a bit. And, uh, Dushan's actually been here to the States. I don't know how many times, five or six times to visit me over the years. And, uh, those guys, uh, you know, taught me a lot and, and got me out climbing in all kinds of weather, all kinds of conditions, all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of routes. And, uh, that really put me ahead in a big way in a, in a sense I didn't quite understand for a long time. But when I came back to the States and I started looking for climbing partners, the people that ended up being my peers technically here also ended up being quite a bit older than me. Hmm. So that automatically put me in more of a junior role. I, I, I would, you know, and, and the, the pivotal point was a, was a trip I did to uh, Cody, Wyoming to go ice climbing at one point. And on that trip, I met uh, uh, Barry Blanchard and I met Alex Lowe. And those two guys ended up being really important. Of course, Alex uh, died four or five years later. Uh, so I didn't get to spend as much time with him, but I, I spent a lot of time with Barry and he became one of my important mentors and we did, and he basically taught me how to climb the Canadian Rockies, which has become one of the most important places for me personally as a climber. And, uh, you know, that led me to climbing, you know, with one of Barry's former, uh, partners and friends, Mark Twight and Mark and I climbed together a lot. Um, Mark led me to Scott Backies, who became another friend and mentor, um, so it just kind of, just kind of rolled that way. And I think that that's, that's a big part of, um, how I view the role of my Alpine mentors program, because we go on trips and I 
I'm like the constant, but when we go, for example, to Camo or Alberta, uh, I always bring in the locals. And I introduce them to these people. I know all these people. I have their phone numbers, my phone. I call them up and I say, hey, can you go climbing with me and these young guys and gals, you know, during this week? And they almost always say yes. And then, you know, all of a sudden these guys also know, you know, Barry and Raphael Slowinski and Rob Owens and all these other active climbers up there in the Canadian Rockies. And then they go back and they call up Raphael Slowinski and they say, hey, what's, what are the conditions? And he's like, I don't really know, but do you want to go out Saturday? I'm going climbing. You know, and there you go. Now, now it's happening. And it's important it's really hard uh in climbing to get to find partners as we all know because partners are a difficult uh mm-hmm. puzzle uh they have to be uh, not only people we like and respect but we also have to have kind of a match uh in in fitness and technical ability i mean does it obviously have to be an exact match it's almost never an exact match but it has to be some compatibility there um you know, if I'm interested in climbing water ice six and you're interested in climbing water ice two, like we're not going to find a lot of common ground. So, um, just getting on that train is important. Is it, um, is it always obvious when, uh, the partnership isn't compatible or, uh, is it sometimes one-sided? That's a good question. Um, I, I don't know that it matters that much, whether it's obvious, because I think it's like any, I think it's a little bit like a love relationship. I was just going to compare you it will. To, to my dating life, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you know, sometimes it clicks and it goes somewhere. And sometimes you're just kind of like, yeah, well, um, yeah, maybe I'll talk to you next week. You just stop talking. And then you never, yeah, you just stop talking <laughs> to each other. I mean, I certainly have climbing partners that I, that I even did bigger trips with, like, I don't know, Alaska and, you know, mini expeditions and stuff. And we maybe didn't really climb together after that, or we didn't really see each other after that. And we kind of drift out of touch or whatever. That's that. In 2010, you had a pretty devastating fall on Mount Temple. You had broken ribs, uh, pelvis, broken pelvis, vertebrae, collapsed lung. How did you fall? I'm not sure what caused the fall, actually, because I was just... I had climbed a crux section of the pitch and was on some easier ground, just sort of moving up onto this ledge to what I thought would be the belay. And I just all of a sudden was airborne. I think that my footholds broke, her foothold broke. I don't really know. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't like doing it, I was actually cleaning snow off of a hold at the moment. It's just like kind of cleaning snow, looking for the, 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 you know, getting ready to, to grip the hold. And, um, and I, I fell a really long way as I fell about 25 meters. Uh, a bunch of the gear pulled out, partly because, I mean, it's, it's Canadian Rockies. The rock is not always good. And um, uh, this was certainly the case there. I had just climbed this sort of steep crack that was quite crumbly, I would say. And I knew the gear wasn't very good, but sometimes you put it in, even though you're not entirely sure if it's going to hold, you at least hope. Um, and I, was, I was actually stopped by a nut um, that apparently is still there. It's been reported to me by several huh. <laughs> subsequent uh, climbers that have gone up there in the summer um, That because that, there's a route that's typically climbed in the summer. Um, and the nut that has been, so my friend Rob tried to get it out for me, but he, he said it's pretty welded in there. <laughs> so I don't know why I fell exactly. Um, Does that bother you but, that you don't know how you fell? No, okay. <laughs> because honestly, like there's so many times where I was probably close to falling right. and didn't know it and just got away with it because mm-hmm. the hole didn't break or, I mean, I mean, this, uh, there's a, in that environment, there's so much, there is a, a high degree of randomness. Yeah. Um, and you know, at some point you either accept that or you don't. One of my favorite authors writes a, a book called fooled by randomness. Um, do you think like having this perspective of randomness changes how you view other things in the world? Cause there is certainly a lot around us that happens that's random yet. We try to assign, uh, some sort of causality to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and not just in the climbing sense too, but I think also people, I, I think a lot of that for me has come from traveling a lot. I've, I've, I've spent, you know, I've been to Pakistan 12 times. I've spent, you know, Basically, I've spent like 24 months there, if you add it all up. You know, um, my wife is from Austria. We go over there every year for months at a time. 
I've lived, I lived in Slovenia for, you know, the first time for a year. And then I've been back multiple times for six month pieces. Um, I think all those things and as well as the climate, I think that you realize, I think in America, particularly uh, the United States, I think our society, our societal view is pretty isolated and, and I don't think we realize quite how fragile things are. Um, and that, you know, worries me, <laughs> but then it doesn't surprise me so much when, you know, we have the housing crisis of 2008 or, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 and things go sideways in a big way. Um, that doesn't, doesn't really surprise me. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, a lot of dominoes. Yes. A lot of dominoes that are lined up. Did, did you learn anything from the climb? And if so, or sorry, from the fall? And if so, what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that event is another event that I would, I look back and point at to as a major turning point in my life. Um, I was, uh, Long story short, I spent a couple of hours, roughly about two hours, on the ledge waiting to be rescued. We had cell phone service. Um, I my head was not hurt at my legs, arms, and head were not hurt at all because I, I slammed the wall was vertical and I and I just slammed back into it. I didn't hit a horizontal surface or anything close mm-hmm. to a horizontal surface. Like what broke my pelvis, like I had a giant bruise, the size of a number three Camelot. <laughs> <laughs> but like my hip, my, my body slammed into the camel, I would slam into the rock wall. So that's what, you know, broke my pelvis and what oh. broke my ribs were the rest of the cams that were between my rib cage and the wall when I slammed in oh. horizontally. And that's why I had so many fractures. I had all these small, you know, like 20 some fractures because I had basically imagine like falling on a rack, which but in is some, essentially in some respect, what that, I did. That protected since you hit those things with your body, it protected your head or reduced the impact? I don't know. I think that was just luck. Okay. I think I just didn't hit my head because I was, so I was, I was also upside down by that point and my arms were downhill of me. And so I think my arm actually protected mm-hmm. my head. Um, and I was still holding onto my tools and that probably protected my fingers and wrists a bit because mm-hmm. uh, I was just like gripping them. Um, sorry, you know, I, I actually get, I, I mean, even though it's been seven, almost eight, it's going to be eight years soon. I mean, I still like get like an adrenaline rush thinking about it. So I, um, I was on the ledge with Bruce and we had cell phone service and, uh, you know, I was sitting there for a long time and I knew exactly what was happening because I've been, you know, I've been a mountain guide for since the early, you know, since 1991 and I don't know how many woofer wilderness first responders recertifications I've taken, but I've been, you know, I've, I've learned this before. So I was like, okay, I know that I, I've got a collapse long. I know, you know, I can tell these are the symptoms. This is what's going on. I was like, I, you know, and I know I'm, I might die. Like, and it depends on how fast they get here. And then if there's, if it's windy and they can't get in close enough to the wall to long line me off, like I'm done. And, um, I thought, well, if I die today, what am I, okay about with what am i happy with what am i not happy with and it was this was not just a theoretical question mm-hmm. <laughs> this was a real question like this was like i have a really good chance of dying on this ledge in the next couple of hours and you know those that conversation those kind of conclusions that i drew in my own mind um was something I thought about a lot over the next particularly six months. And then I kind of made some big shifts in my life at that point. Um, I left a, a, a relationship that I was in at the time that I didn't think that I didn't, that I shouldn't have been in that wasn't healthy uh, for, for either of us. Um, I was living in a place that wasn't my choice. I was, you know, I was living in Oregon, which was convenient for the relationship, but I I wasn't where I wanted to be. So I decided to move to Colorado. Um, you know, I wanted to be closer to, you know, among other people, my, my good friend, Vince Anderson, he'd been asking me to come out for years to help him run his guide service, Skyward Mountaineering. One of the things that was really clear was that I thought, you know, if I die today, I'm really happy with the climbing I've done in my life. I've done 
I've had some great days in the mountains. I've accomplished more than most people ever, ever dream of in that way. Sure. You know, there's of course part of me even now that would love to do more because I'm a climber and I'm like, <laughs> like, yeah, let's do more. Uh, let's climb more. But, um, I was like, you know, if I never climb again, like, you know, I cannot complain about that, but you know, I never had a family. I never had a, what I would call a successful relationship, love relationship. And, uh, I didn't give back much to my community. I was just fully focused on myself and my climbing and going on expeditions and trying to be a better climber all the time. And everything had to fit into that. You know, I, for a long time, I had a very simple MO. Like when I was presented with any option in any walk of life, it was just like, I'd look at it and say, does this, does this contribute or take away or is it neutral towards my climbing? Hmm. And if it didn't contribute to it and most most cases, if not all, I would just, I would not, I would not engage with it. I was completely focused on being the best alpinist I could be. That was in fact my mission statement for myself, just to be the best alpinist I can be. It's mission statements like that when they're narrow are very powerful because they focus you intensely. Uh, but it also, uh, excludes a lot of things. For example, you know, a good, healthy, happy, uh, love relationship, uh, close friends. I mean, my only close friends were the guys I would go like Vince that I would go climbing with. I didn't really have time for anyone else. <laughs> uh, I wasn't a guy you could go to the bar and hang out with and tell stories and talk, you know, drink a beer. Right. I, I wasn't drinking cause that was like not good for my training. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was very, very serious, um, about what, about my climbing and, and, and not didn't allow it for anything else. So, so that, that definitely uh, had a big impact. So um, over that next year, I, I, moved, I left Oregon. I moved to Colorado. Uh, you know, I fell in, let's see, it was uh, February 25th, 2010. And in January 2011, just a little less than a year later, I met Ava, who's now my wife and now the mother of my son. And that, like we were talking about with relationships, that just clicked and we were just ready and uh, here we are <laughs> now i mean we were we were married about in, in 2012 and you know we've been married now for whatever that is five years on five and a half years and i have a, a coming up on two-year-old son and um that's that's been amazing and that's you know that's that's my mo if i have to rank my priorities now it's like instead of saying my mission statement is to be the best alpinist I can be. It's like my mission statement is to be the best husband and father I can be. And that's number one. And then, you know, climbing is probably like, I don't know, number four or five now. You, I could listen to you talk about that all day. That was so entertaining. Um, and so I've heard a uh, similar kind of recognition of what's important from other people who have undergone some sort of adversity. And I've asked this question before. If only you could have realized that without all the broken ribs, pelvis, vertebrae, collapsed lung. But I don't know if that's realistic. Yeah, I don't think it is, to be honest. And, and different people are different. You know, for me, it wasn't. I'm a, you know, I'm a little bit ADD. <laughs> I, get, I can very easily focus very narrowly and very strongly on one thing and do that thing to infinity. And so I don't think I could have broken that focus without something like this in a way. And, um, I think also everything has its season. You know, I don't regret how it went down. Of course it was painful and traumatic and a lot of it sucked, frankly, <laughs> being that injured. I mean, it was, it was hard. And then the whole rehab thing was hard, but, and it's still hard. I mean, my ribs still hurt to be honest, um, on a regular basis, almost daily. Wow. But, you know, if it wasn't for that, my son wouldn't be here. Coming up, Steve House talks about a time when he overtrained and how that led to a new approach. One that's not new or sexy, but one that works. Mountain Meister is supported by Health IQ. It's an insurance company that uses data and science to secure lower life insurance rates for health conscious people. Health IQ believes that you should be rewarded for the hard work that you do to stay healthy. 
You know, just how good drivers get discounts on car insurance. Shouldn't good livers get discounts on life insurance? That's just another benefit for your spring training for a marathon or a triathlon this season. You might as well save some money along the way. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ, and you must qualify to get a special rate. See if you do for free at healthiq.com slash Meister. Again, that's healthiq.com slash M-E-I-S-T-E-R. This uh, story comes before the one we just talked about, but it was a point in time when you realized how important training was. Um, mm -hmm. You failed a new route on Nopse because you weren't properly trained. Is that? Well, I couldn't keep up with my partner. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which, you know, I came to the conclusion was, you know, I'm, I'm not fit enough. Right. So, and I wasn't training at that point. I mean, that was a 2000, I think. Okay. Yes, it was fall of 2000, um, autumn of 2000 season. I went to Nupse with uh, with Marco Prezel, the Slovenian climber, and Barry Blanchard and Stephen Koch, the uh, snowboarder climber from Jackson. And um, I was climbing with Marco, and uh, on the kind of summit attempt, uh, we were making we were trying a new route, and we climbed for about three. We climbed for three days to a high bivy had a bad weather day there and then had another day where the weather got better and I was done. <laughs> and Marco was still seemed kind of like, okay. And then, uh, w we had to go down because I was done. And I mean, he was fine with that. I mean, he, he would have liked to have summited, I'm sure, <laughs> but it was pretty clear that we were going down because I couldn't really pull my weight anymore. Barry had kind of tapped out <laughs> a couple days earlier and it was just the three of us at that point, Barry and, and Marco and I, and walking out of there, you know, Marco and I had a lot of, ex you know, we, we were very excited. We enjoyed climbing with each other and we were already making plans for like, that's like what we were talking about with relationships, right? We're like, well, where do you want to go next? Like, let's go climb something else. That was great. Um, but at the same time, I'm like thinking to myself, like, God, I got to get my act together here because this guy's a lot better than I am a lot fitter and I can't really pull my weight with him you know it's another form of mentorship right he he was showing me what was possible and that I wasn't as good as he was and not as strong as he was and so I started working with the coach that uh, was pretty much as soon as I came back that didn't really end well <laughs> uh, I don't want to blame the coach but I don't think she understood my personality. And I don't think she understood climbers uh, personalities where, you know, she gave me something to do and I did it no matter what. And I was also working as a mountain guide at the time. So I would get up super early and go do my workout, whatever she had assigned. And then I'd be meet my clients at seven o'clock in the morning and be ski guiding and touring and everything all day. And then just, and I just, I wore myself down and then I got sick. I got really sick. And let me take this excerpt from your website. You say, I became sick in a way I've never experienced before. I was basically in a bed for a month, completely waylaid. I couldn't move. The docs had me on an IV, taking antiviral and antibiotic drugs, the whole nine yards. To be honest, it was a major struggle to get up and to go to the bathroom. They never figured out exactly what I had, just called it an unknown viral infection and left it at that. Of course, I understand now what happened with crystalline clarity. What happened was that I overtrained. Now, Steve, I've overtrained a little bit before. Um, I'm wondering how hard one has to train in order to be <laughs> bound to a bed for a month and needing antibiotics. Yeah, and it, that's that's very true. I was like, I actually, I didn't go, I didn't, I didn't go in bed. I stayed on the couch um, because it was close to the wood stove, and I was freezing cold all the time. What yeah. were you doing? I mean, okay, you you were mountain guiding. What else? What were, what were you doing with your training? I was actually, um, I was actually heli ski guiding mostly. Oh, oh okay. Um, I was doing, I was like doing some ski touring guiding. It was winter. I was living in the town in the village of Mazama, Washington, uh, with my wife at the time, Anne, and um, you know, I would, I would like we had to meet whether whatever I was doing. And like I said, I had to meet the client at seven. And I think what pushed me over the edge was there was a, a, a period of uh, really cold weather. I was uh, in an intense period of, of training. So my training would be, um, 
I was doing my, most of my aerobic training, uh, cross-country skiing. In Mazama, there's about 200 kilometers of groomed cross-country ski trail, and I grew up cross-country skiing. So I'm not great at it, but I certainly have that as a, as a tool, and I, could, I would go out in the morning in the dark with headlamp, and uh, I would do that, and then I was strength training a couple days a week. I was training six days a week, and then when um, I had to, and then during this one period of a couple of weeks, it was really cold and the skiing was really good. So people didn't want to go in. And so they would keep going on X, you know, you'd ski all day. So I was skiing like 20,000 vertical feet with a 40 pound pack. And I was also like in and, you know, in and out of the helicopter and then the guides loading the skis in and out. Um, and you're out there and it's like minus 20 and the rotors are going and you're loading skis all day. And just, I mean, it's just a lot of work. Uh Right. And I think as much of anything, it's, it wasn't necessarily, it was a combination. The, 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 the work, the, the, the job was physically exhausting for many days in a row. And then my training on top of that was equally exhausting. And I didn't have much, and I probably didn't have enough sleep because there's a lot of times getting up at four in the morning to go train. I, I bought, like, I remember that I had, I like ordered like the, the coffee maker with a timer. <laughs> so to save myself that 15 minutes of waiting for the timer or waiting for the coffee to brew before I could go outside. So the coffee would be ready when the alarm went off and I could just like get in the car with the coffee already, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, I just wasn't, uh, as tough as I thought. I, don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I was not invincible, uh, as I thought as a, you know, a 20 plus, you know, 20, late 20 year old guy would think. Yeah. That led me to uh, Scott Johnson, though. And, and I mean, Scott was already a friend and climbing partner of mine at that point. And Scott had recently, at that time, moved to Mazama and had come, had come unbeknownst to me, with a, you know, a, a, a coaching and a professional athletic background, both in swimming first. He tried out for the Olympics in 1976. And then uh, was competing against Mark Spitz, who went on to win whatever it was, eight gold medals. Um, and then, uh, became, and then he transitioned into cross country ski racing and did very, very well on that and, and skied on the world cup, uh, for years. And, um, then he transitioned into, uh, coaching. He, he had another, he had a real business that he ran. That's another story that you've got to interview Scott to get. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, he's got some great, uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. And I'll spend the rest of the hour telling Scott stories because he's got some great ones. Um, but uh, yeah, so Scott Scott came into my life and uh, he was actually one of the people that got me out of that illness because he just basically kind of stepped in and said like, hey, like we need to get you over to a specialist in Seattle, like and this kind of stuff. And then afterwards, uh, I, w- I was actually planning and and did go on an expedition to Pakistan that next summer with Marco. And so, you know, that was what I was training for. Uh, And then over that spring, you know, like when I did my first ski tour after that illness, like first time I went out for any kind of exercise after that illness was over, I, I, I got like less than a mile up the skin track on basically a flat skin track and like had to take my skins off and go back down the skin track and go home because I was done. I was tired. And so that's where I had to start from. I basically said, Scott, like, okay, like I'm yours. Like, tell me what to do. So what tra- <laughs> I'll do it. What, what changed with your training philosophy? I mean, uh, well, I didn't have a training okay, philosophy, a philosophy before. <laughs> well, I, I had the philosophy that most climbers, I think that don't know anything about training have is I just go out and climb a lot. Uh-huh. And I just like beat my head and more is better and harder is better. Like that's, that's the way a lot of climbers are programmed, um, and not just climbers, other, uh, you know, cyclists. I mean, we could just go down the list of, 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 of sports, but, um, one of the things that I think is unique to, to climbing and I, I use climbing the term climbing in the broadest possible sense of the word, including everything bouldering to high altitude mountaineering. Uh, we don't really have a culture of training. We don't have a culture of coaching. Um, if you run in high school, if you ran track or cross country in high school, you had a coach. I'm yeah. sure of it. Yeah. But, you know, and now this is changing because if you're on the high school climbing team, which some high schools have, a lot of high schools have now, you probably have a coach now. But 
historically that didn't exist until very recently with the fitness training scott became my coach and and one of the things that he taught me and one of the things that we carry on through our book training for the new albinism and through our now website and and associated uh coaching business that we're doing uh, at uphillathlete.com that he taught me that there is this huge body of knowledge of about how to properly train and develop an athlete or develop a person, uh, however you want to say it, uh, to develop their, their capabilities. Um, this is not, this is well understood. This is well known. There's a hundred years of, of experience. And most of the, almost all of this comes from, uh, you know, the traditional endurance sports like running and cycling are the obvious ones, but other ones as well. Um, and, and of course, Olympic sports. And this is all, most of everything has been tried and tested and passed or failed on the finish line, on the start line and on the finish line. The, the, you know, we've learned, so there's, there's really nothing new. I mean, one of the, one of the frustrations we often have um, and that I think climbers as a group are susceptible to is the idea that there's something new, that there's something new to be discovered about training and that there's a secret sauce or that you can do it this way or you can only train intensity and it will do this. You can only do this type of weightlifting um, like protocols and it will end up in this result. And that's the best thing. That's all you have to do. And frankly, all that's bullshit. There are no shortcuts. Like we know how this works. People have known how this worked for it works for at least 50 years. Every argument that is presented, for example, pro high intensity training or whatever, endurance and I mean, coaches already had this argument like 50 years ago, and then they probably had it three more times since then. And these things just kind of, you know, they, yeah. these things just kind of come and go. Um, and to be fair, I think a lot of it comes from sort of quote unquote anecdotal evidence where people are like, Oh, I tried this and it worked. Well, that's, and that's great. Like it's great that people experiment because the experimentation is what the, where the, where the improvements come from. The scientists with the lab coats don't tell us how to train because they figured something out due to some, with some empirical study. Basically the athletes and the coaches figure things out because they can experiment and change it. Their, their strategies from season to season and year to year, and in the coach's case, from athlete to athlete, and then they then they figure out what works, and then later the white lab coats prove why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, oh, well, this is why. And so we we know um, uh, what works, and uh, you know we need to break it down simply with with aerobic or or um, what we would call aerobic capacity or endurance training. I mean, one of the most important things is the frequency of the stimulus that you. Do a little bit every day. Let's say you're going to train. You're going to give, you know, dedicate six hours a week to a, you know, developing your aerobic capacity. Well, it's much better to run one hour a day, six days a week, than to on Sunday go out for a six-hour run and then not do anything else until the next Sunday. The person who does one run a week is not. He's never going to get fitter. He's probably actually going to lose fitness, or she. The person who runs one hour a week one hour a day for a week after a month is going to be much fitter. Um, you know, we also know that it's important that the load is, uh, that, and by load, I mean that in this case, let's keep with the, stick with a simple example of the run that, that the, the duration of that run needs to slowly increase over time. And, you know, it's not, you can't make it random. That doesn't help. Your body doesn't respond to randomness. Mm-hmm. Your body responds to slowly increasing uh, stresses and then it builds up the, it's like, Oh, okay, I need to be able to do this. I have to build that capacity. So I'll build that capacity a little bit. And then once that capacity is built, you have to stress it a little more. And so it goes and you can add that that's additive, not just on the scale of weeks and months, but it's additive on the scale of years. And that's how, you know, you get a Killian Jornet or, you know, a, a world-class, you know, um, you know, Tour de France winner or something like that is you get somebody who's, who applies that, that, that very careful and very, uh, deliberate and very, uh, carefully modulated, uh, training stress for years. Usually it takes a decade to, for a person to really reach their genetic 
uh, potential as an endurance athlete. I mentioned uh, Fooled by Randomness, the book earlier. Another book uh, by Nassim Taleb is called Mm -hmm. Anti-Fragile. I'm familiar with him, yeah. Okay. Um, And do you know the anti-fragile philosophy? Where well, you should yeah, I'll, go I'll ahead. explain it. Um, if we if you ask somebody what the opposite of the word fragile is, oftentimes you'll get a response like uh, robust or strong. Um, but really, the opposite of the word fragile is something when you put stress on it, it gets stronger. So if you think of a wine glass, a wine glass is fragile. Um, the opposite of that wine glass isn't the wine glass that you drop on the ground and it doesn't break. It's the wine glass that you drop on the ground and it gets stronger from the stress that you put on it. And so mm-hmm. he argues that a lot of um, a lot of things in this world, such as and many biological things, um, such as our body, are anti-fragile, where when you put a small stress, now we're not talking about large stresses mm-hmm. because things can kill you, but small stresses, we come back stronger. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, uh, terrific amount of content on uphill athlete. Uh, can you just go over maybe the prices and kind of what you offer? Well, first and foremost, our sort of mission and what we originally, we originally started with our book training for the new alpinism. And then we kept getting, we got so many, uh, so much interest. Uh, and so we're getting so many emails. We're like, we need a place to put this. <laughs> we need a forum or something. Um, and we were also getting a lot of requests for people to help them help them build training plans or even coach them. And so we had developed some training plans and we had developed a, a certain, you know, a co- remote coaching service. And so then we, we eventually built a house for all of it, which is up to athlete. And our, 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 the most important part of our mission, I feel is to provide free, reliable, proven, as we say, training knowledge. We, we really, we, Ours is not the website where you're going to find the fad or you're going to, you know, the, the, the one workout to rule them all kind of a thing. Like we, that, you know, that doesn't exist, honestly. And so what, I mean, it's a little boring. It's not sexy. It's the op. It's (laughs) anti-sexy what we're doing. It's like, you know, this is, but it's what works. And we have a huge variety of art. We have 130 articles on there at the moment. We add one or two every week that address all, all forms of mountain sports from mountain running to ski mountaineering, ski touring. Um, we don't, we typically don't deal with bouldering per se, but we do talk about like, you know, grip strength, uh, and that, those kind of aspects of climbing, but we, we, from rock climbing all, all the way up through mountaineering and alpinism, uh, we address all those, those parts of our sports. Um, these are the sports we love to do ourselves. I mean, Scott also, you know, we're both skiers. We both like to to run. I mean, I'm not a good runner, but I, I enjoy it. Um, and those kind of, and those are the sports we we're, we love. So, um, mostly we want to have a place where people can go and they can learn something that is, uh, you know, we're not selling snake oil. It's something reliable. It's something they can count on. They can, they can, it's, it's, it's verifiable. We know that this is how this, these, these methods we are talking about, we know they work and we know that that's what every real athlete does. Um, so, and then from that, you know, of course we do offer still our training plans for sale. Uh, we offer our coaching, um, which we do remotely. Um, we have a couple of coaches now working for us, so it's grown a bit. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, first and foremost though, we just want it to be a, a place for the community to come and learn some good information. And they can also, we have a forum section where people frequently post um post questions and then Scott or I will go in and answer them. And we like doing it in that format, in that public way, because then it's searchable. People have the same question. They can usually find the answer there. Um, or if they can't, they can ask us. So that's, uh, it's a bunch of different things. Very good. That's it. Uphillathlete.com. One, sorry, two final questions for you. We don't have too much time left. Um, we ask them to all of our guests the first one is that I'd like you to give our listeners a gear recommendation. Now, you don't carry a ton of gear relative uh, to some other climbers out there, so that maybe gives even more meaning to how you answer this question. So give us a gear recommendation. 
Um, one of my top things I always think every every winter climber needs to have a synthetic blade parka. I mean, down is great, but for being out in all kinds of weather, uh, I can put on. You know, I, for years it was for me. I, I work with Patagonia since 1999. I've been an ambassador for, with them for almost 20 years now, and we we had forever the DOS parka, and now it's uh, renamed the, the Hyperpuff parka with a DOS insulation. But I mean, you know, that's an example of something that is just a bomber piece of gear that you need in all kinds of weather. And I, I sort of feel like it's my survival suit. If I have that, I can live through a lot. Um, and then the other thing that I think I'm going to go out left field a little bit because yes. I think, uh, I like this, this is, uh, you know, I think climbers, um, and, and a lot of outdoor athletes, uh, in general have become really obsessed with hydration and, uh, I'm going to suggest that people don't need to carry as much water. I've been mm-hmm. typically on big days, I'll carry one liter. And on anything less than a really big day, I'll carry a half a liter of water. I'll drink a bunch in the morning and then I'll expect to get thirsty in the end and a soft flask that you can put in a pocket, like what the ultra runners use, you know, 500, 600 milliliters, or maybe a couple of them if you need, need more, uh, is, uh, something to try out. I really think that there's, uh, a lot to not, u- not needing to carry around uh, four pounds of water. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's something for people to try. I wasn't expecting that. It takes uh, some, some getting used to, I think, but uh, <laughs> you'd be surprised at how far you can go and not very much water mm-hmm. when you start trying it. Very good. The last question is, who would you like to hear next on this show? Oh, boy. I guess I'd have to review the uh, the list of who's been on here, on I, which I have not taken the time to do. But I would actually like to hear Scott Johnston yeah, because I think he's got some great stories. <laughs> um, um, uh, let's see. Who else has great stories? Um, Jack Tackle. There's a good storyteller. On Old school taken, mountaineer. Taken. He's been, taken. He's been. He's been. Yep. yep. And a great, great great storyteller. You're right. Great storyteller for sure. Uh, Barry Blanchard, another great storyteller. I know he's been on here uh, (laughs) because I remember that. Um, Alex Migos. There we go. I like Alex. Alex is a really good kid. I've met him quite a few times through our uh, through our work with Patagonia, our mutual work with Patagonia and different events and trade shows and stuff. And I really like him. He's got great energy, super positive and he's super psyched. And he's, uh, he's, a, he's a fun kid. And, uh, I call him a kid. He's not really a kid to me. He's a kid. Um, and he's obviously an incredible rock climber. And, uh, and, uh, I think he's got some good stories up his sleeve. Keep an ear out for Alex Migos and Scott Johnson on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Steve House, it has been amazing talking to you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. We'll have links to everything that we talked about in today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. If you want to hear more from Steve, check out his book, Beyond the Mountain, which you can read or listen to narrated by Steve. Also, Training for the New Alpinism by Steve House and Scott Johnston. Next up is our Company Spotlights segment of Mountain Meister. In our Company Spotlights, we introduce you to lesser-known outdoor brands. These companies are not allowed to pay to be featured. We get absolutely no money from this, and we only feature companies whose products we have tried. After we get acquainted with the brand, Hannah Van Wetter and I review the product, and since we have no financial interest or relationship with the company, we can say whatever we want, no strings attached. Today's company spotlight is with Ridge Marino. Ridge was founded by Jeff and Susan Russell. It's out of Mammoth Lakes, California. Jeff was working for Armada Skis on their soft goods when he noticed a gap in the market. We'll pick things up there. Uh, that gave me the chance to work with um, some really high-profile athletes, um, and the guys in the backcountry side, you know, they spend you know their entire day out, you know, stomping around in the snow, skiing. They're outside, and we were producing synthetic base layers that were a nice branded fabric, and they had no interest. And I kind of opened my eyes to merino, and um, they were buying their own merino lip base layers, wearing them underneath our stuff that the photo shoots we're doing at remote lodges or when they're skiing. Um, it's just more comfortable for them it, to these guys. The odor was also a huge factor that Merino doesn't pick up body odor. Um, 
or bacteria as much. It's, you know, it's really good on multi-day trips. It just really got me like interested in the fabric um, and why a lot of my friends still hadn't adopted it and what was going on here. Sure, there's big merino companies, but there still seemed to be missing a big portion of the people. So that was kind of the white space we kind of went after. And um, we um, started Ridge to offer a better value for, for the same quality product and to do some things that some of the bigger companies weren't doing. Ridge was founded in 2014 with just base layers, but since then they've expanded their product line with a few other pieces. Here's Susan, the other co-founder and Jeff's wife. When you think base layers, particularly merino wool, you think winter. And merino and wool in particular has has that connotation. But I think the thing about merino is there there's a breathability mm-hmm. and the, the natural qualities that we love about it can be used year-round so so yes we have boxer briefs we have women's boy shorts we have a tank top that everybody loves so that's you know there's no season for that you can wear it you can layer that up even in the winter definitely in the summer so looking at ways to sort of break the seasonality while still using those natural fabrics is something that we're very interested in um i i heard um or i've seen i should say that merino can vary uh in price pretty drastically um i'd say that ridge probably falls in the middle to lower end of that um from what i've seen maybe even on the lower end how and why um does merino vary in price well merino itself is incredibly expensive fiber i mean it it comes from an animal obviously and you know there's it's just it's expensive. Um, it's about five times more expensive than say like that synthetic base layer shirt. So there's a lot of pressure on price when working with Merino. Um, so, um, that's why it's, it's so expensive. It's, it's just hundred percent dependent on that material. Um, where we're able to offer, you know, a little better price. What you've seen is we're small family owned. So we have lower overhead and we currently sell direct. So, we have, you know, one last stage of markup than, say, companies that are working with retailers. Susan, you'd mentioned uh, the popular tank top and then uh, some underwear. Could you talk a little bit more about other popular pieces from Ridge? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Just going back on my previous statement, now that it's winter and the weather is really starting to turn, the mid layers are starting to become a very popular piece for us. We have what we call our heist mid layer and we have it in men's and women's. Um, and, and that's a really great piece for layering, particularly on these windy, (laughs) it gets very windy and, and cold here at times. So, so it's a really nice piece for insulation. And one of the, the things we try to do is separate ourselves from some of the other companies is we'll, you know, do some digital printing and try to, offer something different um, in terms of product rise. And this year we have this really cool print for women on the bottom, which is um, inspired by kind of this AR event we had last year's Atmospheric River. And it's just kind of this wild blue and green. Oh, I'm looking um, at it right now. I'm on your website. Yeah, yeah that is cool looking. So it's almost like a body of water. Yeah. So what happened was last year we had record snowfall in January, in particular, January 2017. And we were just hammered <laughs> by these atmospheric river events. And it was all anyone was talking about. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we sort of played off of that? So I started looking at satellite images of these events. And that was the inspiration. So we enlisted the help of our artist. And he commissioned a print for us. And we digitally printed it on these 100% merino wool leggings. And so we did it last year and it was a big hit with a different pattern, but this year it was, or a different design, but this year it was the atmospheric river. I forgot to ask you before the interview, if you'd like, we can set up a promo code for the listeners. I'm not sure if you have that capability on the website. Yeah, we actually already went ahead and did that. Wow. Perfect. What is it? I'm excited to hear. 20% off. 20%. Yes. Thank you. That's Jeff and Susan Russell. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's 20% off with the code MEISTER. 
M-E-I-S-T-E-R at RidgeMarino.com. The link is also in the show notes of this episode and the code expires at the end of March. If you look for environmentally conscious companies, Ridge is a member of 1% for the Planet. It's a group of organizations that donate at least 1% of annual sales. That's sales, not profit, to environmental causes. If that's important to you, shop away. Now, before you buy, you probably want to know what Hannah and I thought of the products. Uh, Hannah. Ben. Ridge Merino. Yeah. What do you think? So, What'd Ridge you get? Merino, I got the women's quarter zip top. The heist hoodie, it's called. Yes. As did I. We both received the heist hoodie. And then the other piece that I got was the natural pullover. So two tops. And then Hannah received the three-quarter length mid-weight bottoms. So let's talk about the heist hoodie first. So I think I got the heist hoodie before Ben did. And by the time I had seen him, I was wearing it all the time. Like, Pulled it out of the package. It's a women's cut, so it's it's attra- It's got an attractive fit. Um, I wore it like to dinner um, with you know a down vest over it. It has a hood that is um, nice but not obtrusive, so it's not a hood that gets in the way if it's underneath a vest or some other layer. Um, but you know, wearing it skiing or something, you could easily put it underneath your helmet or put it over your head for that added layer of warmth. So it's a, it's the good mix of a functional hood without being, you know, totally in the way when you're not wearing it. Yeah, it's um, like a it's like it a base has, layer style style hood. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's pretty close fitting to your head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's really um just a simple cut, nice black top. It has really nice thumb holes. Um and a very simple like embroidery ridge merino, nothing um like on the sli- on the sleeve, it's not on even on. Yeah, it's not on yeah. like a chest or anything. So you, yep, it's very tastefully done. Yep. Um, so yeah, I ended up as soon as I got it, I wore it all the time. Um, skiing to dinner, like walking around, going for runs. Um, it was a really nice sort of midweight base layer um, to pair over. You know, another long underwear top if it's a cold day skiing, or you know, with a pair of jeans if you're going out to a casual dinner, or you know, with shorts if you're going for a, a chilly run. Um, it's uh, so I feel the same way. Uh, I wear it all the time. It's you don't need an undershirt. I mean, you would I'd look weird without an undershirt underneath it because the zip goes pretty low. Uh, so like you should wear an undershirt underneath it. But if you're wearing it as a base layer, I guess you don't need it. Um, but it's that comfortable, like next to your skin. Yeah, yeah, I think that's unique with wool. My dad has an icebreaker top. Uh huh. Um, that's very similar, black. Um, same style hood and I've been coveting his for a while and this is like as good, if not better. Wow. Um, so that, that speaks a lot. The, I mean, yeah. that, the, this thing is, let me get the price, $100. And I think the icebreaker one's probably closer to 150 Oh yeah. Uh, let's see. What would, what would this be? Icebreaker. Yeah. The equivalent from icebreaker would be about 150 and I think the fact that it is as versatile as it is, I think a lot of like base layers are so technical that, you know, if you were to try to wear them with jeans or yeah, right. anywhere without, you know, a jacket over them when you're skiing or hiking or running or snowshoeing, mm-hmm. they would really look, look weird. And I think that one doesn't at all. So the other one that I got was the natural pullover hoodie. This one's like a little like looser fitting. It's really, really like a relaxed fit. And, uh, you can wear it all the time. Um, Meredith, my roommate told me that I should wear it on a date the other night and she had only seen me wearing it once before that. So it is, uh, yeah, this stuff is amazing. The price range is really, really good. The, the natural pullover like is so loose fitting that, uh, it could almost seems to stretch over time. Uh, mm. but you aren't really supposed to wash or like dry Merino. Yeah. So like I have to be careful. I'm like trying to put it in the dryer to shrink it a little bit that, that I'm not really sure like how it'll hold up over time. Right. But yeah, awesome. The, uh, the other piece I got were three quarter length, um, midweight long underwear bottoms. Mm-hmm. And those are something that I have sort of become a recent convert while skiing hmm. to three quarter length. 
so I have uh, two pairs of Patagonia sort of midweight long underwear as well. Um, and they're great. There's something really to be said with ski boots. They're, they're not, they're, they're very skiing specific or snowboarding specific. These leggings are? Well, just a three quarter length oh, okay. long underwear. Okay. Basically the idea of it is, is if you have your ski socks pulled all the way up, right, right. you know, your long underwear come right to the top of them. You don't have any folds underneath your, um, ski boots versus if you have a long, like full length, long underwear, rolling them up or right. doing whatever's best for you. So that's why I've, um, started to like wearing, um, three quarter length long underwear. That said, if you're wearing them underneath jeans or, you know, any other time without full length ski socks, um, they're not great just because of the length of them. Okay. That's nothing to, to Ridge Merino, just something to be aware if you are to buy these. Um, and what'd you think of the leggings compared to like your Patagonia ones? I think they're great. They have a really comfortable waist. The waistband is, um, wide enough that, you know, you can pull it up and tuck things into it, which for women's fit base layers is, can be Mm -hmm. kind of unique. A lot of them are like low rise almost. Um, and when you're layering underneath your ski clothing, it's nice to have everything tucked in for a cold day and make sure you don't get any snow down your pants or anything. Um, so that was one thing that I immediately liked about the Ridge Merino is it did have this wide waistband. Um, so they're good, like true base layer. And again, the, the wool is so soft that you, know, you have them next to your skin without any sort of irritation or issue. I, the last point I wanted to make was that it seems like the stuff has a little bit of a more youthful feel. Um, mm-hmm. like especially the tops seemed, yeah. uh, like if you probably don't want to be wearing at least the, the looser fitting top that I have, you don't want to be wearing that if you're over like 40, 50 years old. I think it's meant for <laughs> a younger audience. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the, you know, Ridge Marino coming into this industry. Yeah. Yeah. Let all the yeah, older lower, people buy icebreaker. And, right. Right. Lower price range. Yeah. 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 Uh, would you buy it with your own money? I think I would. Yeah. Yep. I wouldn't buy many things, uh, but this, yeah, I'm going with, yes, I would buy this with my own money. If I had to, Did you wear if I purchased clothing, pullover? I would buy this with my own money. Huh? Right. Did you wear that pullover on the date? Uh, I wore the other, I wore the, um, the heist hoodie on the date. And how'd it go? No Did kidding. she compliment your shirt? Um, I wouldn't say like explicitly <laughs> she didn't compliment my shirt. But the date went well. But the date went very well. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks Rich Marino for supplying my uh, Monday night date outfit. <laughs> <laughs> That's 20% off with the code MEISTER at RidgeMarino.com if you're interested. All of the links from today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com, also in the show notes of this episode. If you want to see more of Mountain Meister, go follow us on Instagram. It's at Mountain Meister spelled out. Again, not MTN, but it's Mountain spelled out. If you have any feedback on our company spotlight segments or you just want to say hi to yours truly, email me. That's ben at mtnmeister.com. Till next time, I hope you enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank. You've been listening to Mountain Meister. <laughs>